This is the sidebar for the week of March 10th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. C-SPAN's The Sidebar goes beyond the headlines of the stories shaping the conversation in Washington and across the country with interviews that provide background and context to the issues and events dominating the news cycle. Our guest this week is former ABC News White House correspondent and co-host of This Week, Sam Donaldson. He gave us his assessment of how the current White House press corps is covering President Trump and the job of Press Secretary Sean Spicer. He knows when he says things that they're not factual. He knows when he says things that uh, it's, it's just a bunch of malarkey. And yet he knows he has to say those things. And he has to say them in such a demonstrative way, as you saw in that first Saturday when the president sent him out, as to make his uh, boss uh, admire the fact that he has lashed out at these uh, vicious reporters and what have you. Joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sam Donaldson, ABC News, legendary newsman. Thanks very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Well, it's always good to talk to you, Steve, but don't use the word legendary. That's one (laughs) word away from calcified. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Sam, let's talk about the current state of the White House press corps. From your vantage point, you covered a number of presidents. You're now seeing what's happening in this administration. What are your observations? I'm very proud of the reporters, most of them there in the press room. They are doing their dead-level best to get factual answers to important questions. They're not very successful, but it's not because they're not trying. And there's nothing they can do from the standpoint of forcing uh, Sean Spicer or Donald J. Trump to actually answer a question with the truthful, factual information. All they can do is try, and they're doing it. A lot of attention on the televised briefings, and former Press Secretary Mike McCurry says he regrets the fact that these briefings are now on camera. You covered administrations when they were off camera, then the first five minutes, and then on camera. What do you think? Well, I I sort of think McCurry has a thing uh, about that, uh, and I think he has a point. Uh, Although I was a television and uh, radio reporter, not a print reporter, and liked it at first that we were included from the standpoint of being able to show our wares, meaning talking to the president, uh, all of his that was on, but talking to the press secretary. But now I think McCurry has a point because they've turned into a, a PR show by the press secretary, and in the case of some reporters, an attempt to demonstrate how tough they are. So I, I'm not sure it accomplishes that much. What do you remember about the briefings when you first covered the White House with Jody Powell, and how do you compare those briefings to what's happening today? Well, Jody Powell had unparalleled access to the president. I remember one time going in his office, and I don't recall the issue, but saying, Jody, what's President Carter going to do about X? Jody said, you know, I don't know. Let me go find out. He ran out the door, came back in about three minutes, says the president says he'll do this. Uh, Well, that's really great service. Jody knew how to dodge and weave and do so most of the time without uh, raising a lot of hackles, without uh, making it a personal thing. And over the years, what's happened since, uh, because it wasn't personal usually with uh, Larry Speaks, who was the main briefer during the Reagan years, or, of course, with others after that, McCurry won, uh, it's now gotten very personal. Uh, You see it with uh, Sean Spicer. I've never seen anything quite like that. He's under such great pressure. He knows. I don't know him. I've never met him. But he he clearly is a pretty smart guy. 
And he knows when he says things that they're not factual. He knows when he says things that uh, it's, it's just a, a bunch of malarkey. And yet he knows he has to say those things, and he has to say them in such a demonstrative way, as you saw in that first Saturday when the president sent him out, as to make his uh, boss uh, admire the fact that he has lashed out at these uh, vicious reporters and what have you. So I, I, I'd like to have a little sympathy for him, but not much. Well, let me ask you about that, Sam Donaldson, because that was really uh, his first entry to the national stage behind the podium. As you said, the first full day of the Trump White House, the day after the inauguration, as you watched what he said and the reaction, including how SNL poked fun at him, uh, what was going through your mind? What do you think motivated Sean Spicer to do what he did? Well, I only know what has been reported, which is that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, told him to get out there and give him you-know-what. And so he, he tried to do that. Uh, now, he went a little overboard because in trying to do that, I've seen the press secretaries who know how to uh, try to control <laughs> the reporters in a way, but not, as I say, make it personal and not be so offensive that the next day they're under great fire. Uh, I'm just going to tell you a story about Mike McCurry, which happens to be true. Uh, one day We like true the, stories. Yeah, well, it, they're, they're rare these days in some quarters, but uh, one day we were on him for something. It was during the Monica thing. It was before Bill Clinton had to, uh, to appear before a grand jury and actually tell the truth about it. So he was still denying that there was any of that connection. And I don't remember the exact point, but we said to uh, McCurry, what about X? McCurry said, well, I don't know anything about it. We said, well, go ask the president. He knows about it. McCurry said, no, I'm not going to go ask the president. And someone said to him, Mike, that's your job. You, you are the press secretary. Why won't you ask the president? And you'll find in the transcript his exact words were, because I don't want to have to lie to you. Wow. He knew <laughs> that the president would tell him, get out there and say this. And he, by this time, understood that uh, the jig was going to be up for Bill Clinton on this story. Uh, he would try to be uh, uh, faithful to his job as press secretary, but he was not going to be Ron Ziegler. And he wasn't. And I admire him for it. What makes a good press secretary, a successful press secretary? We talked about a few of them already. Well, Marlon Fitzwater was another successful one. He uh, served uh, President Reagan for a while at the end when Speaks left, and, of course, he was George Herbert Walker Bush's press secretary. Marlon would come out, know they had the spin, know they would have to try to put the best face on a bad story, and he would do it. Uh, again, not lying, but he, he would say, now, wait a moment, that's not right. I think you've got to look at it a different way, and the president wants this, that, and the other. But he would always do it with a smile and sometimes almost with a wink as to say to reporters, look, I know that you're smart enough to know that what I'm saying is <laughs> a bunch of bull. But you know that I've got to say it. But I'm not going to insult you by saying that you are so dumb that you don't get this bull. <laughs> I just thought Marlon was great and to this day appreciate the fact that he had a lot of experience that he wanted to serve and did serve, I think, his boss faithfully and well, but did it in a way that earned the respect of almost every reporter in the press room. You covered the Watergate scandal. You covered Iran-Contra. You covered Monica Lewinsky. I remember a few years ago you were speaking to some students that we had gathered here at C-SPAN, and the question was asked, Sam Donaldson, do you have a bias? And I remember your answer. You said yes, a bias to a good story. So explain. Well, 
bias to a good story, and, and also within the word bias these days, which is being kicked around because the press corps is now labeled the enemy of the American people, which is ridiculous and nonsense, but, uh, and I hope of more and more people don't believe it, as President Trump's uh, sayings and tweets uh, become more and more ridiculous. But you have a bias toward the truth. You have a bias toward facts. Now, as John Adams said, Steve, facts are a stubborn thing. I mean, I could say to you, the moon is made of green cheese. And you could come back and say, well, you know, we talked to uh, people who've actually walked on the on the moon, and, and they said they didn't find any Buzz Aldrin. He didn't find any green cheese. <laughs> and all of the astronomers and all the scientists who study this thing says it's not possible, given the atmosphere, et cetera, for there to be green cheese. Now, if I simply say to you, well, let's investigate it. Period. No, it's up to me, if I have any evidence, to prove it. It's up to me to say, well, this is why I say it. Here is the evidence that I'm counting on and, and relying on. And if I say no, well, that, that, that is something that I have a bias against. That's a, something that as a reporter, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to say, oh, well, well it could be, could be green cheese. Of course it's not. So, so, <laughs> when so that's you, the kind of bias which is what people argue about today. When you hear Kellyanne Conway refer, refer to alternative facts. There are no think? alternative facts. Now, facts can be in dispute. I think Newton's law is probably true. The apple is always going to fall down unless there's a really high wind. So that's a fact that you really sh shouldn't be able to dispute. But, but when we talk about uh, reforming the Affordable Care Act, all right, that's a political, that's a political uh, matter as well as a factual matter. And uh, I think at, up to a certain point, you can say, here's a view, and here's a view, and here's a view. And as a reporter... If you're doing uh, not a commentary and analysis in which you're giving your own opinion, you should uh, give these various views. Uh, but uh, eventually, it'll come down to the factual material. Uh, for instance, the, the new uh, plan unveiled yesterday by Paul Ryan, and the president says it's wonderful, it's great, pass it right away, and it's having such a blowback from not only uh, the liberals and the Democrats, who say you're going to drop 20 million people, but from conservatives who think it's not really tough enough, uh, that'll be sorted out. So at the moment, if you said to me, what are the facts there? I could only cite the studies of people who know about these things that say the way it's written at the moment, it would appear to drop 20 million people. Or the way it's written at the moment, it would favor wealthy people who would get a terrific tax break. But I don't have as a reporter the ability to say, well, that's a fact. I can simply report it. But eventually, something will be a fact. And uh, if it's green cheese, it won't be edible at all. <laughs> well, it is a fact that you join more than 200 of your colleagues at ABC News urging the network to stand firm against this White House. And so my question, what is your chief complaint, your biggest concern about the Trump White House and its relationship or lack thereof with the press corps? Well, the, the, the letter we wrote was to stand firm against excluding certain news organizations because the White House apparently, beginning with, of course, Donald J. Trump, did not like those news organizations. We weren't against the White House per se. They can run their own affairs, and the public is going to make its own decision about them. But my biggest complaint is they're not forthcoming with truthful explanations for what they're doing. And why? Because I say they're untruthful? 
No, because they're not factual. I'm not talking about my personal bias as to whether I think we should have the Affordable Care Act or we should have this new new thing. I'm simply talking about when you ask a question, you expect an answer. I'll give you an example of something from the Sunday show, Steve. Uh, when I started doing a Sunday show for ABC in the 60s, it was called Issues and Answers, politicians of all parties and all ideology would come, and if you ask them a question that they were really uncomfortable with, they would dodge, they would weave, they'd try to change the subject, etc. But they wouldn't just lie. These days, they just come and they just lie. On the theory, I suppose, that A, their base will take anything they say. They don't care. I mean, their base, hey. Or uh, it won't catch up with them, even though the, the Kessler and the fact checkers the next day, they say, here, here, here's our proof that it was not factual. Uh, and people who watched will not read all of that. And so they'll get at least a percentage who will always believe their lie. And so my biggest complaint in a long-winded way, but then again, Steve, you know, I've always been long-winded, is the White House is not factual and truthful in the answers it gives. If they don't want to answer the question, they can say, we don't want to answer the question. No comment. All you can complain about is that the public has a right to the information. But when they lie about it, no, <laughs> this is something new. Well, you can be long-winded with this next question because it's often asked, who is the Sam Donaldson of the current White House press corps? No, well, I, I guess you mean that to flatter me or else <laughs> maybe not. Of course. But, but the point is, I think the reporters that I watch today, whether the uh, Custer from CNN, I don't want to start going down names. I leave out people. Andrea Mitchell yesterday with Tillerson. The Secretary of State is escorted from the room because she's asking questions, I guess, during a photo opportunity. Well, they're, they're not they're at a funeral, they're, which would be inappropriate. They're not there in some formal sense, giving the State of the Union. I mean, can you imagine someone in the State of the Union message yelling, you lie? Yes, his name was Joe Wilson uh, at President Obama. And so I'm proud of these reporters. They're all trying to do their job. They're all trying to get – when April Ryan says, are you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus? First of all, she has to explain what the initials mean to the President of the United States. Uh, and then he says, well, are you, are you? he doesn't quite say you're one of them, meaning you're black. But he says, well, they're, they're friends of yours, right? Well, yes, I, I have no – well, then why don't you – <laughs> and, and the fact that April didn't have to come back. I'm proud of uh, Jake Tapper on CNN. One time recently, he lost it a little bit, and I understand why some people complained. And he just looked at the camera and said, Mr. President, if you're watching, do stop whining. Do your job. Well, that's a little over the top. But I suppose I'm proud of these reporters who are standing up. If they're called enemies of the American people, they know they're not. They know they're good Americans, and they're trying to bring facts to other Americans in this country and people abroad, and they should just keep doing their job. Let me remind our audience of a couple of exchanges that you had, Sam Donaldson, with President Reagan. I want to go back to 1987 during the Iran-Contra investigation, and you took aim at whether or not the president was trustworthy. Let's listen. The polls show that a lot of American people just simply don't believe you, that the one thing that you've had going for you more than anything else in your presidency, your credibility, has been severely damaged. Can you repair it? What does it mean for the rest of your presidency? 
Well, I imagine I'm the only one around who wants to repair it, and uh, I didn't do have anything to do with dis- if damaging it. Sam Donaldson, go back to that moment, the way you framed the question, the president went on and answered it. But uh, do you remember that moment? I do remember it. The, the president, at first, uh, I just have to put the right word to it, lied about it. When, when, the, when the story came out that we were selling arms to Iran in exchange for Americans being, having been held hostage in Lebanon, I remember we asked him about it right away when we had the first chance. He said "There's that, that, that story coming out of Beirut, uh, I don't remember his exact words, but he said there's nothing to it, it's like whole cloth. And so the question seemed to be appropriate. If he if he was going to start and, and continue, as he did for a long time, to deny what more and more became clear was the case, was the factual case, he was losing his credibility to the American people. And I did think that, along with his optimism, the biggest thing he had going for him was when he said things, people believed that he meant them, that, that he, he, he was telling you what he felt and all of that. And, of course, in something like this question, telling the truth. Well, I would just like to amend that to the point that when finally he was persuaded by his aides that he had to confess that he had authorized the sale of those arms to Iran or an impeachment investigation, which was already brewing on Capitol Hill, might really have steam. And so I think it was March 6th. He went on television, talked to the American people, and here is what he said, and I'm, I'm almost giving you word for word, but please check the transcript. He said, when I told the American people that I was not selling arms to Iran, uh, I was telling the truth. But now the facts appear to be otherwise. In other words, for him, he couldn't conceive that he had not told the truth. And I'm sure when he authorized it, uh, for the best of reasons as he saw it, which was to aid in getting Americans out of captivity. He felt for them. Uh, he did it the wrong way, but I liked his motive. I liked his motive. He was not a president who was feathering his own nest, or politically or otherwise, uh, but uh, he wanted to free those those men being held hostage. And, of course, you covered him for eight years, Sam Donaldson. Were you an easy foil for him? <laughs> At first I was, yeah. Some people said, well, you had a special relation. I, no, I didn't have – I was a reporter, and he was president of the United States, and I knew the difference. But in one sense, I thought at one point it was like two hams recognizing each other and playing off each other, except I was always the, the fall guy. I'd ask him a question, and he'd come back with a snappy one-liner. Uh, perhaps you have – Well, let, let's play it yeah. because here is one of those moments from 1981. Mr. President, in talking about the continuing recession tonight, you have blamed mistakes of the past, and you have blamed the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. <laughs> well, Steve, when he said that, we all laughed, and the country laughed. I mean, he, <laughs> for many years I was a Democrat. It was I've a great line. I've been thinking about it for years afterwards, and I realized, finally, he meant it. He was not coming up with a funny line. He believed that he was part of the problem because he thinks the Democrats at that point were the problem in getting us into a mess and that he was once a Democrat, so he had to confess. Because Reagan could be very literal. He had to confess that he, that he was part of the problem rather than, hey, I've just thought of a way to put old Sam down and get a big laugh, <laughs> although that's what happened. 
Let's talk about a couple of other presidents that you covered over the years. First, Jimmy Carter. That was really your entree into the White House beat, correct? It was. I talked to presidents beginning, well, I went down to the White House for John Kennedy. I never had the courage to ask him a question. I'd go to his news conferences. But beginning with Lyndon Johnson, I interviewed every president and talked to them and knew them to some extent. But Jimmy Carter I knew very well because I spent the year of his campaign in 1976 with him, uh, like, uh, you know, flypaper, and uh, got to know him. I, I got to like him. I saw both his strengths, I think, and his weaknesses, and he had he had plenty of both when it came to being a national leader. Uh, but the summer in Plains, Georgia, when we sat there beneath the water tower, the three networks, and there was only three networks. Hey, we're all for competition, Steve, until it comes along, and then <laughs> we're sorry that, that all these cables are there and all that Internet is there. Hey, wait, but this is C-SPAN. Event, we're, we're one of those networks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Here, here's the thing. He was an engineer, as we know, a nuclear engineer in the Navy. He liked to solve problems, and he liked to do it in a methodical way. He liked to do it in a logical way. Uh, he was not a great national politician, uh, certainly not in pressing the flesh, like Bill Clinton, the best I ever saw. I mean, Jimmy Carter didn't have a lot of time to be taking small talk with you. I mean, he, he liked people okay, but he wanted to, he wanted to do the job. And so... Within weeks of his taking the oath of office, the Democrats on Capitol Hill were were against him. I mean, for instance, one of the great stories told, and I think it's true, is that Tip O'Neill, the great speaker, uh, wanted some extra seats uh, for uh, one of Carter's speeches up on the Hill. I guess it was the State of the Union, the first speech, and uh, sat down at the White House. And Hamilton Jordan at the White House said, no, we don't have extra tickets. What? But the Speaker of the House, your your Democratic Speaker, if you wanted a hundred, you give him a hundred, and you try to clear people out. I mean, Carter didn't have that ability. On the other hand, he put together the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which spared that part of the world until recently another great huge conflict, and he did it at Camp David, and he did it finally in the Middle East. He went there in his plane. His advisor said, well, you did the Camp David Accords. I know that's falling apart and not going to reach a peace treaty, but you're going to fail. And uh, then all the credit you'll get for at least putting in a framework. No. They they said he was a wimp. He was no wimp. (laughs) And he went and he did it. And so he had the strengths and he had the weaknesses. And that strength may have come from his mother. There is one story that I know you have told often privately can share with us publicly uh, an exchange? Well, it was great. Jimmy Carter's campaign uh, speech began by saying, I'll never lie to you. I'll never mislead you. I'll never dodge a controversial issue because we'd been coming out of Watergate and all that stuff and the Vietnam War. And so uh, a female reporter, I'm not going to give you her name because she was a really good reporter and did her job well and all of that, but she'd written something the Carters didn't like. So she kept asking for a uh, interview with Miss Lillian, Jimmy Carter's uh, mother, who's in her 70s, former Peace Corps worker and all that, and a irascible woman. We all liked her. And finally, they gave this reporter an interview. So she came down and met Miss Lillian and said, uh, Miss Lillian, uh, now, your son, the governor, is saying that he'll never lie to us. Has, has he never told a lie in his life? Well, Miss Lillian said, no, I, I don't think he told that. Well, you know, he might have told a little white lie now and then. Everybody does. Well, the reporter said, to, well, what's the difference? What, what's a white lie, Miss Lillian? Miss Lillian supposedly replied, according to Jody Powell, well, you remember when you came in 
I said how glad I was to see you and how nice you look. <laughs> That's a white lie. It's a classic story. Let's bring it to uh, some of the issues that we're dealing with today, Sam Donaldson. First, uh, the White House going after the press for using unnamed sources. Uh, You, as a reporter for television, find it more difficult to use sources, but you had to rely on them as well. What do you think? Well, you have to use sources to get information from governments or uh, the academy or, hey, even the... uh, Academy Awards, if you want to find out the facts, because people don't want to get themselves in trouble. They don't want to get fired. uh, And sometimes they don't want to be responsible. So they'll tell you, okay, I'll tell you what's going on here, but you have to keep my name out of it. Uh, And so usually you, you cite your source by a high administration official or a lawyer familiar with the facts of the case or something to say to the audience or the readers, well, I do have a source or more than one source. And this is what I'm told. There is something called the Lindley Rule, uh, after Ernest K. Lindley is now Mm -hmm. deceased for many years, who was Newsweek in the 40s. And the Lindley Rule says if something is important that you must get, but they will not tell you even on a background basis, you could agree, and I've done it twice with presidents, as uh, not one-on-one, but with a group of two or three other reporters, that you will take the information given and cite it without a source. It's just you. You would say, for instance, while no one knows how the president is going to react uh, at the White House uh, at the moment, uh, it is understood that he will reject the notion. And someone has a right to say, well, what do you mean it's understood? That's all I can tell you. Well, well, uh, how do you know it? What's your source? Uh, All I can tell you, it's understood. Well, I'm using the Lindley rule, and you don't do that frequently. Do you miss this? Do you wish you had a front-row seat inside the Brady briefing room? Questions to Sean Spicer and to President Trump? Well, last year, people asked me occasionally, uh, would you like to be back in the fray, a political reporter, once again, covering a campaign? I said, oh, no, it's a young person, (laughs) young person's job, getting on and off that bus and filing and and being up at all hours. No, no. (laughs) But now, Steve... As I watch what's happening in Washington at the moment, yeah, I, I sort of like to be back. I sort of like to be in the press room. I sort of like to be uh, there to interview President Trump. I've done that. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, I did a long interview with him in 1990 on his failing businesses. Trump Airlines was failing. Uh, the Plaza Hotel, which he owned, was failing. The Taj Mahal, the, uh, a new casino in Atlantic City, was failing. Uh, but he, of course, told me in the interview how everything was wonderful. He said, I'll sell Trump Airlines for $550, $600 million. He said, I'll sell the Plaza, uh, the Sultan of Brunei, offered me $750 million. Uh, and he had a lot yacht called the Princess, which he'd bought, he said, for $20 million and put about $10 million into refurbishing it. He said, I have someone ready to sign it, buy it for $115 million. I said, well, why would anyone pay $115 million for a yacht you bought for 20 Because it's a trophy, he said. It's a trophy. People buy trophies from him. And he was the Donald Trump of today. Hey, we both were younger. He looked better. Uh, but during the course of that interview, when I called him on some of these things, because he'd borrowed all the money. So eventually, in the, within a year, he lost the, the Plaza Hotel to the banks. He lost Trump Airlines to the banks. His friend Carl Icahn, the billionaire, who's still a friend of his today, took over all of the losses that were being incurred by the Taj Mahal, and he sold the princess for $20 million, exactly what he paid. But during the course of the interview, he called me rude. 
He called me ignorant, and he said I was out to get him. So, Steve, I'm one of the original members of the press corps <laughs> to feel the lash of Donald J. Trump. He didn't say I was an enemy of the entire American people, but he implied I was his. And I was not his enemy, but I was a reporter trying to get him to be factual in what he was saying. But it so, was an impossible job then. But yes, I'd like to try again, sure. So finally, after 50 years uh, here in Washington, on the beat, on Capitol Hill, in the White House, how's life for you? It's great. Uh, I see some of my friends who are retired, and you know, I'm 83 at the moment. Uh, but I say at the moment, I hope to be 84, 85. It's the old story. No one wants to live to be 100 till they get to be 99 years of age. <laughs> uh, reasonably good health and uh, enjoying life. And life is a parabola. You start over here on the left, you go up, and, and then you come down on the other side. I was so lucky, thanks to people like Rune Arledge, uh, who was my boss for a long time at ABC. You know, there's, a, there's an old saying. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get, because I did work pretty hard in those days. And uh, now, though I'm at the other end of the line, to try to... You know, say, I, why am I not up there? Why am I not the White House court? Why am I? That's ridiculous. The kids push the old guys out. I remember because when I was in my 20s, I was doing it. <laughs> and finally, I have to ask you that legendary sign off on that ABC primetime program one more time. Well, I loved the, being on primetime live with Diane uh, Sawyer. We were co anchors for 10 years, and then the program was killed by Michael Eisner, who was then the uh, CEO of Disney because he thought synergy, everything should be the same and we had the 2020 program which Rune had originated first and so he said we'll all be 2020 but I used to sign off with you know, join us again next Thursday night for another edition of Primetime Live Sam Donaldson I didn't want to be on tape <laughs> joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico Thanks for letting us catch up with you. It's my pleasure, Steve, and you honored me by asking for my views. Thanks. This has been C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. Every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. C-SPAN's The Sidebar, coming soon to a podcast player near you. Thank you for listening.